Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Anyway, church, I'm glad that we chose to come, and uh, I really want to welcome everyone, those who are here and those who are watching online, and we see a beautiful couple there. They are almost celebrating their one-year wedding anniversary. They decided to stay up there. Congratulations, Timmy and uh, Deepika, and meet with them later. And uh, it's, it's been a wonderful week. It's been truly a wonderful week, and, uh, and we witnessed a beautiful union of marriage of two of our children. Uh, Joshua and Shera, and I'm hoping that they are watching online, otherwise they'll be in big trouble after all the counseling I did. So I'm going to check on them too today. Now, we are on a journey through the Gospel of John, and we have come to the last section of chapter 3. So I'm going to ask you, all of you, to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, and in our text... Apostle John bids a sad farewell to John the Baptist. That's what you are seeing here in this chapter. Now, he'll obviously be referred to later in the gospel, but this is the last time we read his own words. So our text today is a fitting tribute to a great man. So in this passage, we find the final words of John the Baptist, and they are also John's final testimony concerning Jesus as the Messiah. So let us first understand the context here. Jesus and his disciples had been in the city of Jerusalem. Son, can you click once, please, on the screen? He had been in the city of Jerusalem. Now, I'm not saying this is authentic. I've got it from the, from the Bible, one of the Bible uh, websites. And you see where Jerusalem is. And he had, Jesus had cleansed the temple, performed a number of signs, and he has spoken with Nicodemus, and we looked at it over the last two Sundays. And they are now leaving the city of Jerusalem, making their way into the countryside. They came near the river Jordan, where they were baptizing believers. So apparently when you look at the picture, and I did some quick math, the bit, distance between where John the Baptist and Jesus is roughly about 100 kilometers it's good to get that you know, perspective here. So as you read through this passage that was read to you, verses 22 to 36, the story begins by describing two thriving ministries that were taking place close to one another. And though we don't know the exact location, I mean, this is only a speculation, where Jesus and his disciples and John were, but both were somewhere there along the Jordan River, which they were using for baptism. So let us dive in and read verse number 22. Can you click one more, please? After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them. Who is them? The disciples. Remained with them and baptized. So Apostle John writes, he remained with them, the disciples. Now I want you to see the NIV translation. Thank you, son. You are my rescue next to God. Praise God for that. Okay. 
You know, it's in interesting for us to, as you read the Bible or study the Word, it's important to take different translations. You'll have a better understanding. Look at what NIV say. Yes. The NIV says that after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with him, with them, and baptized. So I wonder why Apostle John felt this, this statement is necessary here. They spent some time with them. He remained with them. We should ponder these three words, spend time with, because they remind us a very important element of discipleship. There is a life lesson that we can take from this verse. As I read this, it forced, my, forced me to look at our discipleship programs. Now, Jesus is seen as the model for discipling, and rightly so. We may emphasize on a classroom instruction and usually a highly structured program and accountability and other controls. And while these may be commendable, what is the most important thing for discipleship? I cannot overlook the fact that Jesus spent time. Everybody says spent time. Jesus spent time with his disciples. To, to, so to be the Lord's disciple is to spend time with him. Spend time with him. Of course, discipleship is about witnessing, accountability, one-on-one -on -one relationship with those who come to faith in Christ. But the first and foremost, a disciple is one who spends time with the master. So church, please pay attention. Our time of study should be a time of fellowship and a time of intimacy with God. Now, we see that a significant part of Lord's discipling simply spending time with his disciples. Do your own research. Go through the gospel. You'll see that. He spent time with the people. Even as he was ministering to people, he went into their houses and, and they spent time with them. Spending time. How about your intimate time with God? How much time do we spend with God? On a one-on-one -on -one intimate time, like the time that you are dating or quoting somebody. You want to spend all your life, not knowing what you are signing up to later on, but then you want to spend all the time while you are dating and quoting, and are we having the same amount of zeal to spend time with God? That's a key component to discipleship. If you are not spending time with God, an intimate time with God, you are not a disciple. Period. Verse 23. If we go to the next verse, 23, Apostle John writes, Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. What do we take from this church? So the disciple of our Lord baptized those who, those who come to them. At the same time, we are seeing John and his disciples are also baptizing. Now John's was a baptism of repentance, and we looked at that way back when at the beginning, and the baptism of the Lord's disciples was essentially the same. Of course, the disciples could not baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit because our Lord has not yet been crucified, buried, or risen from the dead. So this verse also tells us, look at this passage, John chose the location because there was plenty of water. Plenty of water. There was much water there. 
That's why John chose that location. So what does it mean if so many people are being baptized? It is necessary to find a place with plenty of water, true. But not this church. This word, much water, signifies immersion baptism. It's another day that we can talk about that in detail, but John Calvin says this, that the reference of much water indicates that Jesus and John were plunging the whole body beneath the water. So listen for us, church, a clear indication to those who are debating about water baptism. There may be some who are seated here, maybe debating about water baptism. Now, so the question is, how about you? Have you obeyed in the waters of baptism? These are one of the two ordinances, but the Lord has commanded us to observe. Number one is this. Number two is what you are going to do today, participating in the Holy uh, Communion. Are you resisting because of traditions? Let me say this, church, a confession. I did that for the long period of time until the Lord met me on my road to Damascus. That was painful. That was painful. Because I believed in the traditions. I grew up in a Methodist church and the background, and I believed in, 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 in the baby, in the, in, the, in the infant baptism until the Lord met me. Let's keep going. Verse, 20, verse 24. For jo Apostle John writes, For John had not been thrown into prison. Mm -mm. So all of a sudden you see John is injecting a qualifying explanation here in this verse. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. The question is, church, why would Apostle John feel that this statement is necessary? Right? That's a question we have to ask. The reason is, if you look at the Synoptic Gospels, all start our Lord's public ministry after the arrest of John the Baptist. Look at this. In Matthew, in Matthew chapter, in Mark chapter 1, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee. So the gospel writer of the gospel of Mark, he starts Jesus' public ministry only after John was put in prison. Look at Matthew. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. So what we are seeing here, church, is only in the Gospel of John do we learn of an earlier time when both John and Jesus were ministering simultaneously. That's what you're seeing here. With both groups, John and his disciples and Jesus and his disciples doing virtually the same thing at the same time, baptizing those who came to them. So John wants his readers, understand this, to know of this unique and a brief period of simultaneous ministry. There must be a reason. The scripture, there are nothing by accident that got into the scriptures. It was divine ordained. So there must be a reason why we have this information about pre-John's uh, prison terms where these simultaneous ministries are taking place. So why do you think this narrative is important to the readers today? I'll tell you why. Because it is the setting from which a perceived problem arises. A problem. And a big lesson for us. There's a great powerful lesson to learn the problem arises because the Lord's successful ministry at this time. 
So church, as we read through, we learn valuable lessons from John the Baptist's response to this problem. It is a model of humility. It is a model of Christian servanthood. It is a model of successful Christian living. That's why I titled this as Successful Christian Living. From John to Jesus. So let us listen very carefully, not only the Baptist words, but I want us to see the Baptist heart. That's what I want you to do. Let's look at verse number 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and Jews about purification. Church, I don't know how many of you are in the business world. I was for the longest part of my, my, my profession. Your eyes are always on the competition. More than knowing your strengths, you want to, if you understand the competition, that's how you can succeed. You want to know their strengths and weaknesses. So in my career, I spend most of my time studying my competition. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? How do I capitalize on their weaknesses? Because your success comes from your ability to know your competition and to outshine all the rivals who compete in the same industry. Therefore, church, in a, in a competitive, um, in, in, in the business world, a new kid on the block is perceived unfavorable and as a threat. Right? That's natural. You want to eliminate them. You want to get rid of them somehow for you to survive. The same kind of perception is seen here when some of the disciples of John the Baptist, when the Lord Jesus and the disciples started to baptize. Things were going really well for John the Baptist, isn't it? Because as you read through the, read through the passage, we, we see that he had a very successful re revival ministry. He gained a rather large following from all over Israel. He was, his bold and powerful and effective preaching brought thousands of people to hear him and be baptized. Look at this passage of scripture in Matthew 3, 5 to 7, where it talks about John the Baptist's ministry. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went to him. To whom? To John the Baptist. See the amount of people going to see John the Baptist from Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region around the Jordan went to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins. So all people from all walks of life are going in, the fishermen, the soldiers, the, 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 the publicans, and even the Pharisees and Sadducees, some of the elite ones, they went. And some of them were willing to stay on with John the Baptist to become their disciples. And believe it or not, John and Andrew are two of them. The very disciples of the Lord Jesus. So to them, John was the prophetic word of God who had finally broken the long silence of 400 years after Malachi, here we see a prophet, John the Baptist. He is the great man. Because the Israelite community grew up always being led by prophets. Here's the man. He is the big man here. So they believed that the ministry of John the Baptist must increase by all means, but John himself was not of the same spirit nor mind as them. Surprisingly, church, as you read through this, his view was that he must decrease and Christ must increase. So the rest of the narrative in this passage from verses 25 to 36, John teaches us some valuable lessons on successful Christian 
living. The first lesson we learn, I'll, I'll make the statement and then we'll work through this, is we must forsake the attitude of resentment or envy. That's the first statement I want to make. We must forsake the divisive resentment of John's disciples. We see that in this passage. This resentment started as a result of this new development and it became publicly known that there was a new ministry that had started by someone by the name of Jesus who was apparently being baptized by John the Baptist. I want to see this, you to see this problem from the people's perspective. There was somebody walked in and John baptized him and now he has gone and started the ministry somewhere else. That's how the disciples are saying. So in the verse 25, let's look at it again, verse 25. Then, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. So the Jews, in some translate might say a Jew, but the Jews were questioning the validity of John's baptism now. They're asking by saying it's no longer unique and effective since there is someone else who is doing the same thing and there are many coming to be baptized. And even he, the someone else, is drawing a larger group. So we are disturbed. So what is, how, how about your purification? Is it really true or not? They're questioning him. Verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, listen very carefully, Rabbi, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, who are they referring to? Jesus. To whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. You will notice that the disciples of John considered Jesus to be what? A rival to their master. That's what you are seeing here as you look at this. See how they address him. John the Baptist, Rabbi, Rabbi. The highest respect that they can give to a teacher, Rabbi. See how they are addressing Jesus. He who was with you beyond the Jordan. Guys, do you see the difference? John the Baptist, Rabbi, this guy. Boy. I wanted to see how the mind worked for them. To them, Jesus was someone for whom their master had done great favor and bearing good witness. So Jesus is greatly indebted for his good reputation today. So he must subject himself to John the Baptist. That's how the disciples are seeing him. And he, they should, he, Jesus should not do anything against the master. So they interpreted what Jesus was doing now, preaching and baptizing as rather unkind and inconsiderate act against John the Baptist. Church, if their focus was the kingdom of God, please hear me out, because we make the same problem, mistakes. They should have rejoiced there are two ministries that are happening and reaching out to more people than what John alone can do. But they were unfortunately blinded by their own sinful perception of what Jesus and his disciples were doing. There's a life application here for us, church. If we are not careful, we too may fall into the same kinds of error as the disciples of John the Baptist. It can easily become a besetting sin for us who live in a competitive environment. Church, perhaps you led somebody to Christ 
And what do you naturally want? You want them to come to your church, be part of you, and to grow with you, and grow in the church. But they leave you, and being engaged and in a thriving ministry somewhere else, what do you do? He or she should have been with me. That is our envy. That is exactly the problem that we see with the disciples of John the Baptist. Church, instead of rejoicing that there are more people are being reached out to God, we allow the envy to set in. It does not have to be in the spiritual realm, church, because not everybody are pastors and leaders, and we are all in the secular world. If you are a student, this may apply to you as well. Maybe your classmate or your best friend, every time a test or exam results come out, uh, you are eager to find how much is his course. Trust me, we were brought up in Sri Lanka. I don't know about others. We were brought up like that. How much did the other person get? Why didn't you get more than that? It's injected in us. Maybe to, to, to make us do better in life, but the problem is that that itself is sin. It's not about them, it's about me. It can be as a parent. How is your child performing in comparison to somebody else? See, that child can dance and sing and do everything. My child can't do it. If you are a working adult, you may have some feelings of rivalry concerning your colleagues at work. If there's someone in particular whom you do not wish to see doing well, Church, this is a personal message to you and to me. Because the one who gets all, he gets the best deal and rewards because of his extraordinary skills and talents, are you constantly bothered by what your colleagues wear to work or what kind of car they are driving to work, how much money they are making, what type of homes they are owning, Generally speaking, are you unable to rejoice at the apparent success of others? If any of these are true, church, then you may be having a besetting sin in your life that you need to deal with. It's called envy. E-N-V-Y. Envy. Envy is a terrible thing. It is utterly destructive. It ruins close relationships. You know, as you read through the scriptures, we see that envy caused Cain to kill his own brother. It's envy that caused the elder brother of the prodigal son to become hostile and bitter towards his younger brother. It was the envy that causes you to treat your close friend as your rival. King Saul loved David so much that he made him the armor bearer, but when his subjects began to praise David's victories, he became so envious. To an extent where he sought to kill David. If you are envious, you spend more time scheming of ways to bring the other person down instead of seeing how you can lift yourself up. Let us repent of that sins of envy and resentment, church, and learn to rejoice instead at the success of others. Don't ever consider anyone to be a rival. Be learned to love the people around you and appreciate the blessings God has given to them. I'm not saying that that's what the scripture says. Let's, let's look at 
how do we respond to such situation here? I'm seeing somebody being successful. I'm seeing somebody prospering, getting more marks than me or doing well in life. How do I respond to that? The human response is to get upset. You're upset not because the other person is doing well, you're upset because you are not in power with them. So how is John the Baptist responding? Verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. It's an excellent answer that John the Baptist gave to his disciples. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. That means, simply means, church, all ability and success ultimately comes from God. Church, listen very carefully. Therefore, if you are displeased with the abilities that God has bestowed on others or at the success that allows them to enjoy, then you are claiming that God is unfair. You are claiming that God is unjust. You are claiming that God is unwise. You want to help God. That's what I'm not saying. John the Baptist is saying. So let us learn to accept whatever God does to us and to others. And the same way that Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's move on. Verse 28 to 30. This is the second lesson. The first lesson is forsake the divisive resentment or the envy. And the second lesson, we should, now please listen carefully, be contented with what the Lord has blessed you with. Be satisfied, be happy with what you have. What God has uniquely placed, positioned you in your life. So my second statement is that follow the delightful contentment. So the first one is forsake the divisive resentment. So what the John the Baptist said in verses 28 to 30 reveals this through greatness, church. Despite the power and the popularity he had enjoyed and effective preaching which brought thousands of people to repentance, he selflessly claimed, listen church, nothing for himself. He's not claiming anything for himself than what God has assigned to him. We see three points in this response here which will allow us to understand this. Verse number 28. Look at this. He's telling three reasons why you should be contented, satisfied with what you have received. Number one, you see it here. You yourself bear me witness that I, am, I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent by him. So Jesus, John reminded them that he is not the Christ. We have to remind ourselves that we are not God to provide what we, what we, what we have to get. So when did John say this? We look, at, we look at a passage at the very beginning in John chapter 1. We, we, we went through this passage. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? This is what John's response. He confessed and, and did not deny but confessed, I am the Christ. I'm not the Christ, I'm sorry. He also reminded them that he was merely a forerunner. That's what he said. The one who is sent before the Messiah. In fact, he had, he had already pointed Jesus out to them as the Messiah of Israel, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
So not only he reminded them that he is not Christ, look at the second answer he says, he rejoiced in the secondary role. Look at this passage here, verse number 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. We observe that his, he sees his joy to be the best man at a wedding. I am not the groom, I am the best man. Some of you here may have served as best man in your wedding. Your role required to assist the bridegroom. That's your role in a wedding. To relieve him of the worries that, that, that will invariably crop up at the wedding. You have to attend to the problems. At one time, the best man was responsible for the safekeeping of the wedding rings. That's my great fear when I conduct uh, weddings, because if the best man does not bring the ring, I don't know where to go for a ring at that time. So I asked them 200 times before the service starts, show me the ring. Where do you keep it? Which pocket? Show me the pocket. That is the job of the best man. So in all this church, the important lesson that we learn here, best man is secondary. Under no circumstances, he is to take over the bridegroom's position. So John the Baptist here found his greatest joy in the secondary role. That's what he's saying. He was content that he had, what he, that he had accomplished his role. He had baptized Christ to the full, to fulfill all righteousness. He has introduced Christ to the public as the Lamb of God. Two of his disciples, as I said before, John and Andrew were thus vowed to directed to become disciples of Christ. You can see that in John chapter 1. His work was finished, and shortly after this, he's going to be cast into prison. In some way, it was a sad for our listeners as we listen to John the Baptist. It is sad from a worldly perspective, isn't it? That is the pity that we have on ourselves. Oh, poor me. Look at him. Look at her. Look at them. But John rejoiced. That's why I said at the beginning, don't look at his words. I want you to see his heart. John's delightful contention is seen here, first, that, that he was not Christ, second, that he rejoiced in his secondary role, and the third thing he regarded in verse number 30, look at this, he regarded the exaltation of Christ as his goal. He must increase and I must decrease. This is not to justly say I'm chicken, I, 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 he's chickening out, that's not what it is, uh, he's not resigning but they were spoken with satisfaction and contentment. How happy am I that Christ is increasing in my life? It's only right and fitting that he must increase and I must decrease. This is something that we should all be willing to do, church, every one of us. Nothing should bring us greater joy than Christ exalted in our lives. So these words capture the whole essence of Christian living. He must increase and we must decrease. We must therefore follow John the Baptist in making the foundational principle and goal of our life that Christ must increase in my life and I must decrease. Exactly what Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So in order for us to fully advocate this as our personal goal in life, we need to know the reasons why Christ must increase 
and we must decrease. So I, 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 I walked you through this. I told you the very first thing, two lessons that we learned here. First one is to forsake the divisive resentment. Second one is to follow the delightful contentment of Apostle John. Now the rest of the verses, he is telling us why Christ must increase and he must decrease. Now, three important reasons. First look at verse number 31. He must increase because Jesus has a heavenly origin and is above all. Why should Christ increase in my life? Because he has a heavenly origin and he is above all. That's what he says here. Look at this. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. The word all here refers to all human messengers, teachers, prophets, apostles who communicate the truth from God. They are all nothing but imperfect earthly messengers. That's what Paul, uh, uh, John is saying here. And hence they are only earthly vessels that convey whatever they had received. So John is repeating the point that Jesus' existence did not begin here. He came from above. Jesus came to this earth from heaven. So John contrasts himself with Jesus here in his response here. Look at this. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of earth. He is referring to himself. That's me. That's not Jesus. Jesus, John is, I want you to understand, he is not nullifying his statement, but rather he is pointing out to the limitations of his statement by, by just contrasting it with the superiority of Jesus. That's what he's doing. He must increase because he is above all. And the second reason that he gives, we see it in verse 32 and 33. Look at this. Come along with me. Not only that, that he is above all, he has a heavenly message. This Jesus. Listen to this. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. So John points out in our text that Jesus can testify truthfully about heaven. Only Jesus can do it. Because Jesus is telling what he has seen and what he has heard, and he is not speculating or prophesying anything. John, however, says that as general rule, no one receives his testimony. Meaning that Jesus comes and speaks, majority of the people don't receive his testimony. We see that today in the world. That is why missional work is difficult, church. Evangelism is difficult. People refusing to understand his testimony. They reject his testimony and his teaching. But John says the one who accepts his testimony, they certify their belief and God is true. When God speaks through his son, look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. What is he saying here, church? Listen. John says, The prophets of old spoke being led, empowered, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So is Jesus. The difference is, the Spirit's ability to empower the prophets was restricted by their sinful, fallen, and human nature. And I tell you this, church, every time I come to the pulpit, I am speaking from my heart. 
if I have not repented of something, or if I have had some issues with somebody, it's difficult for me to stand here and preach. You can't do it. You can't do it. And you know what? The congregation will sense it. Because the Spirit's empowerment will be restricted and limited by what you are holding within. I can give example, but I don't have time for this now. There may be flaws in our speaking, but Jesus Christ, He whom God sent, He speaks infallibly. He spoke the word of God. Because God does not give spirit by measure. There's no limit to the spirit power working through Jesus. He spoke heavenly message. There is a key application for us in this church. While only Jesus could infallibly speak the very words of God, every pastor and Bible teacher should strive to be faithful to the word of God. Sometimes when you start to speak the word of God, you have some difficult truths to be conveyed which may be thorny for you and may not be palatable. But you, at that moment of time, you must understand it is the spirit that is speaking to you. It's not the individual. If I water down and dodge the difficult truths, as pa some pastors do, I'm not being faithful to God. And I've given you the authority to hold me accountable, please. Anytime. Anytime. And listen, church, there's a lesson for us. I know some of us are glued to TVs. We say, I watch this TV, evangelist so-and-so. We watch so-and-so on the, on the TV and see these miracle crusades and see this then healing crusades and all these kinds of things. I'm not speaking against anybody. Let God hold them accountable for what they are doing. But church, listen carefully. If you listen to a pastor who waters down the word, you won't be faithful to God. So be careful whose programs you watch on TV and devotional you read. If you are hearing only stories and stories and stories of motivational speech, be careful. So three reasons why John says that he must increase and I must decrease. Firstly, he said he has given, he is above all and he has spoken a heavenly message. And the last one he says in verse number 35, let's look at this. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus has heavenly authority. Authority. Everybody say the word authority. The love between the father and the son and the spirit is eternal and perfect. We heard that at the time of Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descended on him and the Father proclaimed what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when the Lord spoke, about, uh, spoke to the disciples, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What does that mean, church? It means that as we proclaim the gospel, we can appeal to Jesus to open blind eyes, to reveal the truth, to those who are lost, because he has the authority. Only he has the authority. He alone has the sovereign authority to fulfill the word with power. So this is what we learned so far, church. Three things we learned here. We had to spend intimate time with God. We had to forsake 
the divisive resentment within ourselves. We should follow the delightful contentment that we looked at. And the reason that we do that is because God has, Jesus has heavenly origin. He's above all. And he has a heavenly message. And he has a heavenly authority. That's why he must increase and you must decrease. But as we go through the last part of it, John didn't stop there. Verse number 36, with that we conclude. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus is the key to our destiny. The answer to one question determines where we will spend eternity, church. Please take this seriously. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Who is he to you? And what you have done about him's claim to be God's means about your salvation. There are, there are two, only two possible responses. You believe in the Son or reject the Son. It's as simple as you want to explain in, in worldly terms, either you are pregnant or you are not pregnant. You can't be half pregnant, right? You believe in the Son or you reject Him. The consequences of rejecting the Son is what you are saying in this passage. Not only to forfeit the opportunity we have eternal life, but to receive the wrath of God. The wrath of God. So I appeal to those who are here, not yet trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, let this be the day of your salvation. Please. The day when eternal life becomes yours through receiving the Son of God. When you do this, you affirm that the, what, word, what God has revealed, that Christ is 100% true. For the rest of us, to the believers, because I see most of us are believers here. There's a powerful lesson here. We have already trusted in Christ and have set our seal that God is true. The main application for us is that Christ must increase in our life and we must decrease. Christ must increase. Let this become the goal and foundational principle of our lives as it has been for John the Baptist. So church is not about you, it's not about your career, it's not about your wealth, it's not about your possessions. It's all about Him. He must be preeminent in your life. So if you are seeking great things for yourself, seek them no more. Speak more about Christ and less of yourself. Let His honor become the goal of everything that you do. Use whatever respect or esteem you receive from others to point them to Christ. Turn every personal success in your life into an opportunity to exalt Him. When somebody compliments you and praises you for achievement, be quick to point that praises to God. That's why, church, when we testify, I always tell you, at the end of your testimony, people should be able to say, what a mighty God He serves. It's not about what you have accomplished or what you have possessed. What a mighty God He serves. The only name that should always be preeminent is the name of Jesus Christ. All of the names, including your own, must be totally eclipsed by His name so that Christ alone will receive the glory. Son, if you can come there, please, to the front. I'm feeling that this message is very important to the believers. Of course, to the non-believers, I already spoke about that. But to us, who are believers, who are still clinging on to the worldly stuff. 
May we make a decision today. God is not about me. Church, I want to finish off by saying one incident. I think I mentioned this. Please bear with me. In 1977, I was in a refugee camp. I was on an open ground and I was lying down on the floor, on, on the ground, on the grass ground. There was a man who was next to me. Both of us were there. I was just uh, graduated from school and, and uh, you know, barely starting my life in my early 20s. This man was apparently the richest man, a merchant in Colombo. Both of us were lying next to each other. And when the bread was brought in, I was asking for a piece of bread, he was asking for a piece of bread. I'm sure he had servants in his house. I'm sure he had a lot of people to take care of him. But when he was beaten and when he was thrown away, we both ended up on that ground. Why am I saying this? It doesn't matter how you rich and poor you are. At the end, we are all equal in the new Jerusalem. It's not about your possession that you held here. It's not about who you are, what you have accomplished here. You may be a PhD holder, you may be the director, supreme director or the CEO of a company, or you may be the laborer in a company. But if you are a child of God, you are a child of God. You are all equal together as you come there. How are you exalting Christ? We're going to sing a beautiful chorus, and may this be our prayer today. Just a chorus. Why don't we stand and as you, as you see that verses on the screen. In Christ alone I place my trust and find my glory in the power of the cross. In every victory, every victory, let it be said of me, my source of strength, my source of hope is Christ alone. Can this be our prayer, church? Son, can you sing the chorus, please? In Christ alone, I place my trust and find my glory in the power of the Father, as we come today, this morning, as we hear the, I see the heart of John the Baptist, we are all convicted of God that many times we have put ourselves before you. Many times we have claimed the credit for what we have received. And we learn today that whatever that we have is ordained by you and given by you. And I plead with you in the name of Jesus 
that we'll not only forsake the divisive resentment that we may have because someone else is prospering in this world, but we'll follow John the Baptist and have this delightful contentment in our hearts. Because Father of who Christ is, you are above all. You have a heavenly message. You have the heavenly authority. So I pray that from this day forward, that others see us, they will see the glory of God in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.